0: Welcome to the first post-Covid Healthy Beast podcast and I'm joined by a psychiatrist to help us get some insight into the possible effects of all this lockdown and everything and the psychiatrist, Dr. Donald Holt, the name isn't a coincidence, also happens to be my dear father. Welcome, Dad. You're
1: welcome.
0: First question, before, I do want to ask you some professional questions, but the first question is, did my wife bully you into doing this podcast? Yes. I thought so. <laughs> well, you can, That's welcome to my world, then. <laughs> But, you know... It no surprise. No, but if I'd asked, you'd never have done it, so...
1: I think, I think that's not true, but I, I take the point.
0: Yeah. You know, she pushes me into doing things that I don't... I don't like it at the time, but I'm always... They're generally glad of it afterwards.
1: But your wife and my wife have quite a lot in common,
0: so I, I know the breed. I think I think they're of the opinion that if they didn't push us into doing things, we wouldn't do anything.
1: Yes, and it's it's a reasonable opinion. I can yeah,
0: grudgingly <laughs> rudging, I can I can see their point. But anyway, she we're she here, yeah, yeah, we're we're here anyway. We've spent months being shut away yes, in our houses, yes. nearly and, three months, nearly three months, which. If you don't mind me saying you're seventy eight yes now, well done you don't remember the war, but you were born during it but I think it's right to say that this is unprecedented right
1: yes and and I rather resent the comparators because there are some ways in which warfare was much easier because you always had the capacity to go to the cinema or church or gatherings in the war, whereas this time you haven't been able to see people. Yeah, because
0: what, from what I, what you learn about the war, it was quite a nice time. Yeah, in, there's into, a sort of camaraderie
1: uh, that, uh, that sustained people, whereas I now it, the isolation is the worst
0: bit. I was just saying on the way in here, we had the experience. I was out with uh, the family yesterday and, a, and an older lady that we passed, we were at least three or four metres from her already, but she kind of turned away and put her head into the hedge and it's a and I understand why she's doing it she was I she was a 90 if she was a day so she's probably in the most vulnerable of groups and you can understand but the, the psychological effects of how we see each other is, re- is, a, is a really weird thing that I think we haven't yet understood the effects of and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a bit because this this thing that we can't really see going back where you your first thought when you see another person is is this person dangerous to me or to my family? Which is a really weird way to look at everybody.
1: But, yeah, I agree with you, but there's been a sort of counter-movement because I've never known people be so smiley and polite as they are at the moment. We go for a walk every day through the park and normally you don't engage with strangers at all. But now you almost never fail to acknowledge them with an eyebrow lift or a smile or a good afternoon.
0: It's a big change. So do you think there's a chance that good could come of it in some ways? Well,
1: people keep saying when things get back to normal. I think they won't quite get back to normal. And I think one of the lasting things is this tendency to avoid uh, strangers or even um, family. I personally be quite glad of the fact that I no longer feel obligated to hug vague members of my acquaintance the way that we have been doing, because it seems to me to be continental behaviour. All this all <laughs> yeah. this hugging. Yes. Yeah. I can do without kissing perfect strangers.
0: I, I, just, I don't think you should really be obliged to touch and kiss people no. you don't want to touch no. and kiss. I mean, I thought that before.
1: Well, I did too, but it was increasingly difficult to avoid without giving offence. In my upbringing I had two distinct sides of the family. My father's side were very huggy, kissy, contacty, and my mother's side were very austere. And I hated the father's side because I seemed to have lots of hairy-faced old <laughs> aunts that I was obliged <laughs> to kiss, and it was a repulsive experience. So it's nice to think we don't have to do that anymore.
0: I think you want to be able to have contact with people you you want to have contact with, don't you? You don't want to to be pushed.
1: Also, there's a sort of continental drift, as it were, because it started off with, you know, one air kiss of a cheek, and then it get to be both cheeks. And and there are threes and fours happening before this rescued us. (laughs)
0: Rescued us. You're the first person I've, I've heard calling it that. Rescued us for all this. All this continental stuff. Yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time in Switzerland, and most of them are three kisses there, yeah. and that's, for an Englishman travelling, it's all a bit much.
1: But one of the things that also has changed, and I really don't know whether this was just my family or whether it was general, people kissed on the lips in those what? days. Truly. Well, Be- because Truly. am what a- cult
0: was this you grew up in? Who's <laughs> <was>
1: kissing <laughs> on the lips? <laughs> this, is, this is northeast of England. I promise you, if you turned your cheek, people used to say, don't turn your cheek... Really? Yeah, you kiss people on the lips and it wasn't always a lovely experience. Oh, I did not know I had, I had one this. particularly luscious cousin and I enjoyed kissing her. everybody else. Forget it.
0: I didn't know, I didn't know about this. So you're blaming the Continentals. Maybe it's the Northerners well, we need to Well, <laughs> my about.
1: parents are were born and brought up within i don't know 30 miles of each other but they just came from different cultures
0: yeah i wonder i mean the only thing the only good thing i think we've learned the sneezing in the elbow which the italians have been doing for years rather than sneezing on your hands and then or just into the open air (laughs) but I, i i was i was reminded i thought about this the other day i remember a man who had had a child and i saw him this was before covid and i saw him wipe his child's nose with his finger and thumb yeah, you know, wipe the snot off. Wipe the hand on the back of his jeans, and then offer me the hand. <laughs> all, all in like a like three stroke. White, white hand. And and I'm like, I saw, you, I saw you do that. Yeah. You can't. I think a kiss on the lips. I would prefer to kiss him on the lips, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, on balance. Back to your job, psychiatrist. So you were a child psychiatrist. Reti- well, I say work as you retired, but. Along with lots of other retired medical professions, you've been asked if you'd be prepared to to work again.
1: Yes, it was more strong than that. I deliberately resigned all of my medical qualifications. The, the only difference is if you pay a retainer, you can stay on the books. But I didn't see any value in that. It just seemed to be a waste of money. So I let it all go. And then we more or less got a government mandate saying that, we had been reinstated, and it did say we could opt out of it if we wanted to.
0: Okay, so the, okay, so the assumption that you, the presumption that was that you'd agree, and for you this came, I guess, a few what a few weeks into the lockdown. Or yeah, something just like a that. few
1: weeks into that, and it came as such as a surprise, such a surprise as when I said it to my dear wife, she said, "My God, they must be desperate." <laughs>
0: That loyal support as ever.
1: Yeah. And I, initially, well, she actually she thought it was a scam. She thought it was a joke. But I checked up with colleagues, and quite a number of us had had them. And if I'd been a surgeon, long retired, I think it would have been inappropriate, because who wants a retired surgeon? But psychiatry, because there was likely to be a, a big demand, because of the knock-on effects of the COVID. I did say yes, because obviously there wouldn't be any face-to-face contact with patients, but I would be happy to work in an advisory capacity.
0: Were you pleased to get that call? Yes, I think I was. Because how long had you been completely retired by? Oh,
1: well, that I point? didn't retire completely until I was seventy-three, so only five years. Was it still? I mean, I officially retired when I was fifty-five for historical reasons, because psychiatrists just did. But I continued to work until I was well into my seventies.
0: So five years ago, had you kind of had you regretted it a bit?
1: Well, I did. Um, I didn't want to retire at all because I loved the job so much. Um, it was my Practice then was largely medico-legal, and medico-legal is an extremely rewarding branch of medicine.
0: So, for the listener, that's when you're going to court, and yeah,
1: representing
0: children's interests in court. Yeah, so a child might, so my child might be between two warring parents, or something like this, yes,
1: or or a child might be mentally ill, or yes, orphaned, or some. One of the many tragedies that befall
0: childhood. So, so you regret slightly well,
1: I, all the... I continue to have just two sessions a week in the National Health Service as it were, just to balance my practice, because I didn't want it all to be court work. Mm. Um, But I, I stopped at 73 just because 10 years previously a judge in court had said that he wanted another 10 years work on a particular case. And I rather glibly said, fine, I'll do that, and I was 63 at the time. So I'd said to the family, I will retire when I was 73, and I did. And although I missed it badly, I think, in a way, it was time to go. If only because judges have to retire at 70. And I didn't particularly like being older than the judges.
0: Particularly when judges are known for being... Doddering. A bit <laughs> old, aren't they? <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. And I think I think people do lose their age. I mean, I wasn't conscious of losing my age, but I feared that other people might be. Well, judging
0: you because of your age, is, you mean? No, sorry.
1: because... One stops, one's opinions stop developing in time. And I was occasionally conscious of, of thinking along tram lines instead of accepting each new case completely afresh. I was, I was over categorizing some of
0: them. So your opinions stopped developing, is what you said? So I, you that's what there. I
1: feared, yes. Nobody ever said that to me, but it, it's one of the hazards.
0: People get to a certain age and they don't take in new information, is that what you mean?
1: It's partly that, and it's partly because the longer ones in psychiatric practice, the more the things that you've learned become, they become more and more manifestly untrue. <laughs> Even such grand categories as the simple division which any junior doctor can tell you between schizophrenia and manic depression, the, the more you... Practice. The more you realise that they're like Venn diagrams, that there's a huge overlap between
0: them. So, so they defined separately, but there's a lot. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, and it's it, it's easier if you can put people into very simple categories, but you have to acknowledge the fact after a while that the categories just actually aren't that simple.
0: Are there things you learned when you were so you were training in the sixties? So are there things you learned then that are just completely untrue now that we, we...
1: No, I mean, in some specialties, if you're a surgeon, for instance, you constantly have to go into new fields. You know, when I first qualified, surgery was all opening people's abdomens wide and, and dealing with the difficulties inside. But almost entirely now, it's done through keyholes and microscopes. and so. But that major... Um, change in practice doesn't happen in psychiatry. I mean, if anything, psychiatry tends to go around in a 30-year cycle, and things are discovered, are over-practiced, fall into abeyance, and then are rediscovered. It's not, it's not a very um, becoming aspect of the work, but, it, but that's the truth.
0: Did you find it sort of sits separately from the rest of the doctors? the psychiatry is it well
1: less so than i mean a a lot of people say are you a doctor or a psychiatrist as if they're separate things and and it's a bit offensive to people who've actually had to do medicine before they do psychiatry
0: it's one it's one of those ones it's one of those professions that the the portrayal of it in popular culture is terrible isn't it it's always the kind of it's, it's the, it, it, it has the piss taken out of it. You know, we just watched um Forty Towers with the kids, and there's a whole episode about the psychiatrist and Basil's terrified of him. And there's a whole episode of Friends where one of them dates a psychiatrist, and he ends up mocking them for sucking on the teats of these large coffees they're drinking <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> All this sort of
1: well. I have to say, I say this with some pain, that psychiatrists en masse are a pretty weird bunch of people.
0: Are they? Yes.
1: At the first psychiatric conference I went to, I thought, I didn't want to join this club.
0: You were already one? I was well
1: on the way to to it. I suddenly thought, because originally I wanted to do surgery, and started in surgery and found it just awful so boring
0: because surgery you really do end up doing the same thing all the time well because you get good at something you do
1: now yes i mean i remember my father saying that he was a hospital manager and one of his surgeons had a book propped open you know on a bit of the patient and he would sort of say to the theater nurse turn over the page and you know he he was it was probably uh, the best the patients could have at the time but people were doing it at such an amateur level it was frightening to think about Mm. and even when I first started you know you could operate on somebody's abdomen in the morning and then their lungs in the afternoon and then you know take a leg off in the evening whereas now it's so specialised that people just do the same operation all day and they get terribly good at it which is super for the patients but can you imagine that being your life
0: Have I invented it that that not only do you just get good at doing ankles, you just get good at doing right ankles. Is, that, is, well, it, almost, yeah. is it almost that specialised? It,
1: it jolly nearly mm-hmm. is, yes. That, that, that old joke about uh, the na- a naval surgeon,
0: gosh, how you chaps do specialise. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, I remember you used to say a thing about you wouldn't do it if it wasn't for the money, you used to say, which I think which I think everyone feels like about their job at some point. But it's at this point of your life you're looking back on it with a lot of fondness is that
1: well I think it's true to say I always absolutely loved it it was just a wonderful thing to go to work every day because the kids were fascinating and their parents were interesting you know there was nothing about it that I didn't like but in a sense when I officially retired at 55 I'd done enough of everyday NHS clinics it was because coming a bit, sort of, I've seen everything now. So my career then became became largely medico-legal, and that gave added satisfaction, because it's a nationwide thing, so I would be driving around the country interviewing people in their own homes instead of in a clinic, and always seeing their parents, and then writing the reports, and then going to court, if required. So there was a lot to that job, and there was none of it. Well, the exception was I found it difficult to set the cases up. <laughs> right. But once they were set up, there was nothing about it I didn't enjoy, I even like driving around the country.
0: Was it ever psychologically difficult for you if if it was, you know, kids in a terrible situation where there's not, that was only so much you can do about it? You know, there are limits, I guess, to well, the- how many people you can help and... Ever, did you ever well, there find are that limits, but of? it
1: isn't as upsetting as, say, I, I spent a little time doing brain surgery when I was a junior. And at the time, we had a ward that was largely stocked with young men who'd come off their motorcycles and didn't have crash helmets on. And just a lot of them were, ended up either vegetables or dead. And there's a huge emotional toll if you have a job like
0: that. Well, I had a guy on the podcast a couple of times, Dr. Mark Barton, and he, he, was a, he was an A&E doctor. And he said that after a while, and particularly when he had kids, just every day seeing these horrific injuries and yeah, people dying and you know, awful things like that, he said after a while, he said he, his colleagues would either turn to drink to, to cope with the stress or they would have to find some other out. Mm-hmm. he ended up finding a healthy outlet which is jujitsu and mm. actually ended up becoming a black belt and teaching that and stopping medicine and has never regretted it because he just said that yeah the things you would see on a daily basis that there is no way that that wouldn't affect you, you know, yeah. if it didn't affect you that would be more of a worry you know because what person is prepared to see all that every day
1: well some people think that there's a piece of ice in the heart of all doctors because otherwise you couldn't cut people open or listen to their misery or whatever and i think to a certain extent that is true because there's a level of detachment in me that at one level i benefit from have benefited from in my work but also i sort of regret as a person because it's Beyond a certain level, one can feel too austere. You know, that things should touch one more than they do. But compared, as I started to say, compared with some branches of medicine, child psychiatry, you know, very few of the patients die. Mm. Very few. And although a lot of them are having pretty terrible lives, if you can do something by either treating them individually or altering their circumstances, at least you helped. Mm. So um, I think if you have a job where by people benefit a bit, it's, it'll do.
0: I think it going to be hugely psychologically helpful to be trying to do something every day that helps people who are in trouble. Yeah, you know? so,
1: and often the weird thing about doing child psychiatry for me was that so often nobody had ever actually talked to the children, listened to them.
0: Yeah. No. No. So no one had sat down and taken the time. No. It's funny. It's funny. It's funny you say that. We sit here. We we talked about this before we plugged in to start recording. That even doing this now is is not a, not not a thing most people do. Sitting opposite somebody and uninterrupted talking. Mm. I've come up with a few of the podcasts I've done that afterwards people have said to me that I've not sat down and talked to someone for that long in. I can't remember when and you don't you just you think about it you don't most people don't do it there's always something going on
1: the other thing is that quite often I go into schools to talk to teachers about a particular child and it bothered me that a child can sit in front of a teacher for a year and I know more about the child after half an hour than the teacher did and I don't say that against the teachers but the fact is that kids don't get listened to in schools they really don't.
0: I think, I don't think, I'm trying to think of talking one-on-one to a teacher and it's being told off as well. <laughs> you know, it's, it being sent to the headmaster's office for, for a bollocking would be about the only time you would, you would actually talk one-to-one.
1: Well, perhaps the system doesn't allow it, but I think it's a shame.
0: If I ask you to speculate, I mean, this is impossible, but to attempt it might be worth something. We've talked about the, the the most vulnerable kids in um in this lockdown that, that maybe they rely on school for their meals even you know so those are the most difficult but you could, the potential psychological effects of all this time being taken away from kids, or, you know babies not being hugged, children not do you have any kind of kind of idea of what you think the harmful effects of all this well, you know, for the for, for kids? Or
1: well, for, well, I guess I would want to to sound more balanced than harmful, because although, yes, yeah, certainly there have been huge levels of deprivation of certain parts of the child's life, but it also has been quite, I imagine, has been quite enhancing in other aspects of a child's life, because children are having to rub along with their parents in the same four walls, as it were, mm. as never before. Because, you know, too many fathers um, say, oh, well, I want to provide for my children, so, you know, they work seven days a week and the kids hardly see them. And the kids get loads and loads of goodies. But that's that's arguably not as enriching as having dad around. And I think a lot of fathers will have, fathers particularly, will have discovered that it's actually rather nice mm. to see a lot of one's children.
0: Yeah, what, what I've noticed with mine is that the, the more the more time you spend with them, the more you enjoy see. spending time with them. And I think the dads I know that that work late and, you know, might kind of kiss a child on the head and, and then see it at, at the weekend, they get, it's easy to get into that state where you don't know how to spend time mm-hmm. with them, so you're kind of, you kind of, they'll then, a lot of them will end up then going and playing cricket on a Saturday and you know, going off and doing something on a Sunday, and not, and it, it becomes not a question of not being able to spend time with the kids, but almost they don't, they don't, want, they don't want to do because they don't know how to. I'm sure that's not, not an absolute thing, but that's, that's sort of been my experience of it. That you get used to it, you know, you get good at it, you get, you get on better with each other.
1: Also, I think, provided it doesn't wreck the relationship, I think a lot of marital relationships will be deeper. Um, as a result of all this. A lot of divorces as well. Well, indeed, a lot of divorces. I do not blind myself to that, but particularly with my private practice, where living in the peripheries of London, one would see families where the father would go off to the city and he'd leave on the eight o'clock train or earlier and get back on the eight o'clock train or later and he'd play golf at the weekend and those children just didn't see the fathers Mm. and if i said to somebody in a naive way well look you okay you're earning a lot of money but how about if you earn less and left at four o'clock say or five o'clock in order to be home and they would try to explain to me that city life just doesn't work like that. That you know, if you're not seen to be um, at your desk for twelve hours a day, uh, you, somebody will get preference over you, and you'd lose status within the firm. But I think now, because of the lockdown, people working from home. I don't think it'll be possible to go back to that level of ridiculous overcommitment to city jobs.
0: Well, that was my that was my experience in in the newsroom. I mean, for years, I would start at six in the morning, and you know, if you start at six in the morning, if you, you've done a decent day by two, three in the afternoon. But no one, if you if you're ambitious, you stay, and people were just people are out staying each other, you know, and mm. staying doing twelve, thirteen hour days. Yeah,
1: it's because you don't be the last one to leave.
0: Yeah, because you don't want to be the one standing up and leaving. Oh, part timer. And I think one of the good things that hopefully will come of this is, I think hopefully most people had seen it but that was a nonsense anyway, yeah. but if it, can, if it can eat into that nonsense, who can stay at their desk the longest, who can see the least of their family, who can have the least of a normal life.
1: The other thing is, a slightly indelicate thing to say perhaps, is that lots of executives junketing around the world to have conferences about absolutely nothing. Um, and perhaps taking advantage of making other relationships whilst the they're the old away. second family, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think in the future, they will need a jolly good excuse not to do it by Skype or...
0: I mean, I've, I mean, I've made so many trips abroad that really didn't need to be made. You know, being...
1: I say nothing about your second family.
0: But... <laughs> yeah, my second... I, th- I think about the second family a lot because you hear about these people and you think, is one family not enough hassle for you? Mm. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and the and the lies that, the, that you'd never be able to the relax. The
1: energy they must put into
0: it. You must sort of be thinking, oh, I just want one of them to find <laughs> out. I just want to pick a family. <laughs> but, but bizarrely,
1: there are lots of cases where people seem to have... Second families within the same borough, you know, and how they never meet. I guess there are lots of blind eyes were turned, but
0: yeah, I mean, you you have to think that you have to think that fam family number one is kind of thinking, oh God, thank God he's off with the other lot. We've got a bit of peace. Yes, well, I think they the, sort of
1: No, you know, there, as as it used to be with the upper classes, I think you know. People were relieved that they didn't have to do that particular bit of duty. They could someone else, is, someone else is, <laughs> <laughs> is
0: taking care of it for you. But yeah, second, second family society, I think the pointless, pointless foreign travel, queuing up for planes to go off to places to have a meeting... Come home. Why, why did I? Why did now? You've got a, the, the excuse not to do it. You
1: know? I, I begin to wonder whether airplane travel will ever fully recover. Because you know, mm. being being in an aluminium cylinder and somebody sneezing, however often they claim to clean the air in a plane, you just have a nasty feeling everybody's going to get whatever it is they've had. Yeah, and
0: we knew. It, you know, we we knew it was bad for you in lots of ways before. Mm. It wasn't just the red eye. It was everything else.
1: So staying put from now. Well, I suppose it will get back to something like where it was, but no time soon, I think. The other thing is that there's a lot of talk about, you know, when they've discovered the vaccine. Well, they're not going to do that any time soon. If they do, it'll take two years to test. And if you think how long it is since the big farmer started to work on a vaccine for AIDS, it's, what, 17 years now and nothing. They haven't found anything. Mm. So they won't necessarily find anything, and if they do, the little beasts develop at such a rate that it'll be redundant by next Tuesday.
0: It's funny, though, that we we go go back a few months, and we can now look back and think how how good everything was in that, you know, we didn't have this to worry about, but... It's not like we ever said things are good because that's not that's not how people work you know we were complaining about there are always things to complain about you know it was people constantly rang about brexit whichever you know people cross on either side doesn't matter which side you're on you know something should be could be cross about. If I, if I look back on, so, you look, you know, the, the news stories that happened in the last few years, when, when things are relatively good, we're complaining because house prices are too high. You know, there's never a point at which you're saying things are okay. And then suddenly, a real problem, something big and new comes along, and we focus all our attention on that, and we realise the others, oh, we didn't need to worry about that other stuff at all. And I think my profession has a lot to answer for, you know, having spent... Years as a news journalist, I I genuinely thought that it was very important to be informed. As I as I saw it, if you're working in a newsroom every day, you'll know far more than everyone else about what's going on in the world because it's, it's your job. It's your job to know it. But does it actually add to your understanding of the world? Does it actually deepen your knowledge as a human being? When all you're doing is having updates on rows and problems, really, you know, you're having you're covering people dying here, you're covering this election here, you're covering all these things which they're things happening or they're people arguing, but do they make you understand the world any better? Do they make you a a person who's better able to set an example to your children or is it just angry noise I think most of it's angry noise and I think it's I think it's not good for you it's
1: it's not good for you but I quite take the point that journalists make that you know if you write um 20 million people drove home safely today that's not news that's not even faintly interesting But a, a, a smash on the motorway that you know causes a dozen deaths that's rivetingly interesting
0: it is it is it's interesting but it's entertainment i think this is this is what we don't like to admit but yeah i'm not saying they should go and do that no planes crash today good news because that's that's not what they're set up to do and the business would fail immediately but we we think we're doing it because this is stuff you need to know but really what they're doing it's it's titillation it's even when it's about horrible things happening it's entertainment that's what both people either people making the news or the people reading it, don't want to admit if you're sitting there watching Newsnight, night you you're you're being a sort of clever person watching a clever person's tv show and informing yourself about the world but really it's just entertainment for you because you're going on there to watch a row you're going on there often to for, for people to feel righteous indignation about things they don't like if 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 you don't need to know these things other than for your own kind of entertainment, what are you doing it for? Well, I
1: think this r- rather brings me back to COVID because I wrote a rather polemic letter to the Times, which mercifully they didn't publish. Right at the beginning of all this, the world had gone from mere overreaction to mass hysteria because, okay, we were fortunate that this particular bug didn't affect young people like the one in 1918 did. This affected only the people who were old and infirm. And frankly, we've wrecked the economy and made people miserable in order to save a fairly tiny percentage of the population.
0: We've we wrecked the economy to an extent that we have no idea yet how
1: well, how I,
0: deeply you know people. I are think talk- we
1: have. We just entered. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, We, we know bad. it's
0: incredibly bad, yeah. but we just don't know whether it's ah being sucked into a black hole. Bad.
1: But but if the government or governments are going to print money, we could end up with a Weimar Republic because r- runaway inflation is a sort of obvious consequence of that.
0: Yeah, I mean there there are I heard on the news today that I accidentally listened to people are talking about it being worse than all of these.
1: Yes.
0: All, all of all of the, all of the 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 wars and hyperinflation and money and money and wheelbarrows that that um that we've seen in, in before before our time. Worse than all that because of a decision to yeah to save people that.
1: They're going out anyway. That. that Yes. Well, my, Just... my letter to the Times included the fact that people of my generation, we've lived our lives, we're all older than we ought to have been anyway. And, you know, I ended up by saying, if I'm not to uh, survive this, then so be it. Because I think it's inappropriate to ruin everybody's lives because of this. Mm. Particularly the young people who are going to have to, you know, pay the pensions and the taxes and everything that the government will need to keep the place
0: running. Do you think it, it, it speaks to a sort of squeamishness and a dishonesty that we can't admit that it's okay for people to die?
1: Oh, exactly, yes. I think it's exactly that. I mean, obviously, it, it's sad, but everybody's got to die sometime.
0: Well, that's it. It's sad, but it being sad doesn't mean you, you, you set the whole world on fire. Yeah, there was this awful, I mean, you, you should never, I, I want to say, that I said this to you before, I want to repeat it. And I don't want it to sound like I'm making light of a relatively young person dying. But there was one story that in the, in the early days of this COVID, when we were just getting a grip on how bad it was or wasn't going to be, it was generally very old people dying. And then one of the, one of the newspaper websites I looked at had made this big thing about a young man dying, it was a man in his 40s. And, you you know, your eye's drawn to it because you're thinking, okay, maybe this thing's worse than we thought. And then you read seventh, eighth paragraph into the story that he'd been given two years to live, 22 months previously. Which, you know, it's terrible. I mean, a a young man died, but this was a young man who, you have to be honest about it, was dying anyway. Mm. And so if if you're kind of robbing people of weeks, months... Of life, when who knows who knows how much life is going to be lost in well, in, me- the, in me- the chaos of joblessness and so forth.
1: Medicine has a system called Nice, whereby um, a committee of doctors decides on broad principles whether an expensive medicine is worth it, and the fact that you know some vastly expensive medicine may save somebody's life for prolong somebody's life for a few months then NICE will say, sorry we can't afford that, we're not saying it doesn't work, we're saying it isn't worth it Mm. and I think NICE should have been applied to this whole Covid thing because frankly I don't think it's been worth it Mm. okay, you know, instead of the usual 20,000 people dying of ordinary flu maybe three or four times that number, but so be it at least the, con- the country would have continued to run, and the, and the the population as a whole wouldn't have been affected.
0: Mm. I think what, what I've what I've tried to do. Um, I mean the the general thrust of doing this podcast in the, in the what I've tried to do with all the guests I've had is I try it. I want it to be a positive thing and I want to kind of look at ways things that we can all do to make ourselves as healthy and happy as possible. So I try not I personally try not to get cross about decisions that have been made. I mean it's it's hard to avoid because really for for all of us as individuals we're just we're just in this situation and we have to make sure that we can us and our families can get through it. Well, as so best the, as possible. the
1: capacity for human beings to predict the future is so feeble is it's hardly worth making the effort my mother used to say that she felt very guilty having me in the war because i was born in a war-torn part of the country during an air raid or so she says and if i mean i'm now in my late 70s and my generation has been just ridiculously fortunate in the sense that we've had free education free university, we had no sexually transmitted diseases when those things were important to us, and we've always had jobs. So, you know, somebody saying when I was born, you poor thing, what a terrible world you've come into. They don't know. It's all speculation, really, and and fairly pointless. I don't know whether you've read Hans Rosling's book about
0: Oh, a well, factfulness. Factfulness. I have, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And it's fascinating because he takes a positive view of everything, not just because it's his opinion, but because he's measured things. And his, he has recognized the fact that people always think things used to be terrible. And things are still pretty terrible now. And it simply doesn't bear out the facts
0: at all. It's a a great book. It's a great book that for just laying down, okay, politically you can never say things are good because everyone's like, well, what about this poor person? What about this terrible thing? But someone soberly saying, actually, we're not doing that badly. Things have improved a great deal. It's a book I would recommend to anyone. The only problem being you have to look at everything now in the context of (laughs) what's... Well except, in the last few months.
1: well, except he would say, you know, okay, people say th- it's been absolutely terrible, world wars and so forth, but statistically fewer people have died in conflict, even counting those wars than ever before, because, you know, if you look at a country like England, you know, everywhere was a castle. I mean, this town that we're talking in now had a castle. There were actual local wars and people killing each other. Mm. And now, you know, Europe has been peaceful for decades Mm. in a way that was unthinkable before. So you know, there's a lot of horrible things happening in the Middle East and so forth. But relatively speaking, they're tiny numbers compared with the past.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a question. I suppose it's a question whether we we always have a capacity to mess things up at some stage, and maybe this is our way of messing it up. Well, there, are...
1: there is certainly a certain relish in bad news. Hmm. At a terrible level, it was entertainment, as you were saying earlier in this conversation.
0: I had to, I had two moments that in the newsroom that meant I had to leave at some point. first was, was personal. It was like I, I remember seeing a, that came through on the news wires that her ship had sunk. And you know, it, it was the middle of the night, nothing was happening. And, and we said, oh, oh, something's happened. Next line, no casualties. And I remember it sort of going, "Oh, yeah. like, like, this is awful. This is people not having died." Yeah. And then there was another time when there was another time when there was um, the news editor. He wasn't the regular editor; he was the kind of Sunday editor, I think. And it was when everyone was when we were losing someone every day, pretty much in Afghanistan, so back uh, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. And some a reporter came up with a sheet of paper and sort of said. Got the got the story for you, and and he said, oh, "What is it? Someone killed in in Afghanistan." And he sort of went, oof you know, so what?" Because it's every day. And he went, "Oh, his twin brother was killed last week." And the editor went, "Oh, excellent." <laughs> and I think yeah, this, but that you talk about the the medical profession you need, needing that ice so they can get through the job in the in the newsroom. People are, people are delighted mm. when bad stuff because that's their that's their job. Mm. You know, that's what bad stuff happens. Good day. No, um, it, that's, not, that's not a good way to look at the world, is
1: it, it? it? It's not. I mean, bringing it back to my own profession, and you're speculating how things might be for children, I had a practice in the army area of, of uh, Aldershot. And so I would often see children who'd come back from war-torn parts of the country where their father had been serving. And the thing that struck me again and again was how resilient the kids were. You know, okay, so you know, you don't go out that way because you get shot or there are landmines, so you play in this place. And, and children's capacity to adapt to ghastly situations is astonishing. Or if you look at old footage of um, slum children, they can always find places to play and enjoy. I remember I was brought up in a place where there'd been serious bomb damage and bomb sites were fascinating places to play we loved it finding the shrapnel and is it
0: is it true that across the board in your profession that you would see I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a more elegant way of putting it but children that don't have difficulties but they, they're on paper their lives are perfect but they, because there's no struggle because there's no difficulty because there's no adversity they, you know, problems can kind of spring up like that it's almost as if you need a bit of adversity well, to ser- keep, you, keep you honest it's certainly true that say. you don't
1: get anorexia where there's not enough food
0: yeah, that's the kind of... That, I guess that's exactly exactly what I'm trying to say, I that think, sort of thing. I think
1: one, one of the things that you conclude from a job like mine is that over-managing children is a serious form of... abuse is the wrong word, but ill-use of children. You know, over-managing them. So yeah, h- so h- micro Exactly. Yeah, yeah and, and inculcating the belief that achievement is everything. Mm. And, and the fact that life is much more rounded than that, it is what they ought to be learning, mm-hmm. you know, that, okay, you failed this exam, or you've not pleased this teacher, so what, really? Mm-hmm. I think it's, if children come home and say, my teacher said this, 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 and I think it's really life-enhancing for parents to say, oh, well, you know, try and please the teacher, but let's not get too upset about this. You know, the child who gets punished at school and comes home and is punished by the parents, that's not good.
0: Is it true, Is it true? do you think as well, that you shouldn't, over—you shouldn't if they've achieved something, you shouldn't overplay how pleased you are about that? Oh, I'm so pleased you've done this thing, because then they link, then they sort of latch onto that and think that's how to please you. Is that, yeah, does uh, it work I, I with think, praise and with...
1: Well, I think... Hmm. I have slightly mixed feelings about this because I remember my wife knowing somebody who was not the prettiest girl on the block but she was American and she'd been brought up to think that she was beautiful and at one level she thought she was she knew she wasn't but she had such self-belief that it carried her through and okay that seemed to work for her but I think For too many children, you know, if they do a a nice picture, I think parents should say, that's nice, darling, and, you know, stick it on the side of the fridge until it drops off a couple of days later. But, you you know, to, to make the child feel that he's the next Picasso isn't doing the child any good.
0: The other way you end up being one of those outtakes on the X factor have you ever seen those where <laughs> there's someone they build I, it's not a show I watch but, I, <laughs> I, 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 but where they they build someone up and they they show the family talking what a wonderful singer they are and mm. then and they cr- you cruelly finally get to this person who's awful and it's fascinating TV yeah in fact I don't like those shows but those are the only bits that I think are fascinating where someone's terrible yeah. and but, but their family is willing to go on camera telling them that they've got the best voice yeah. ever. And you feel, you feel bad. They needed telling, you know, they needed telling they could have done something else. Some like, a comedian said something about some about, um, overweight people during COVID that, that when it came out that being fat was up to your chances of dying. He, he said, if only they'd had some warning that this <laughs> was bad for you. <laughs> Maybe someone had said something. (gasps) There has been
1: a sort of backlash from the overweight. Backlash what? Uh, People promoting it and, you know, overweight, seriously overweight actresses finding fame by glorying in their obesity. Yeah. um... And I think, I have to say, I think there has been some exaggeration of the benefits of being slim i mean just as an example if you take the queen mother queen mother's always overweight considerably overweight but you know she lived off a pint of gin and um, allegedly and not till the hundred and two was she
0: not not only gin apparently she would be brought gin and du bonnie, so booze with more booze in it <laughs> whilst still in bed <laughs> Which I just think An so example is as well. <laughs> yeah. I think that's wonderful. I'm not going out of bed until I'm a little bit drunk. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant way to start she, the day. And
1: she wore four-inch heels until the day she died. Never fell over, as far as I'm concerned.
0: If you, if you live into, into your hundreds, who can, who can argue that it's been bad for yeah.
1: you? Well, my mother, who lived to about that age... Um, when anybody criticised her diet, she said, "Well, I seem to have lasted this long, so I must be doing something right."
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think it's about honesty, really, because uh, honesty and cruelty. Because with overweight people, you don't need to be mean to anyone. You don't need to shout at anyone in the street. But on the other side, you, we don't have to. We can't pretend it's good for you. You know, you can't. You can't. You can't pretend it's good to you, for you to be. The the thing is, I think food.
1: I think people are simplistic about it because I have heard quite authoritative people saying that um, obesity isn't genetic, that it's learned behaviour. I simply don't believe that. I think some people have, as it were, fat genes. Do you?
0: Yeah. But there are always you can always overcome things, right? Well, the, there are no yeah.
1: fat people in Belson. Yeah. Everybody can mm. be skinny if they eat practically nothing. Uh, but some people put weight on disastrously easily, whereas yeah. I was, myself included, I could eat like a horse until I was well into my middle age, and then suddenly you can't do that any longer. But I got away with it for so long. Mm.
0: I think, that I yeah, I think being being nice and understanding each other, but
1: but perhaps we just are too judgmental, really, as a as a,
0: as a people. Yeah, I think we are judgmental. Yeah. I think we are we are judgmental, and I think. I, I think it's, I mean, on a person level, we, we all need to catch ourselves doing mm. it, because I think it's a natural reaction. You, mm. you judge people who do things differently to you, and you find mean, yourself we have minds for it, like gossip,
1: it. you know. We think gossip's just chattering about other people to their detriment when they're not listening. But it's pernicious, really. I mean, I do it, but it's, it's not an attractive trait.
0: I've tried very hard. I've tried very hard not to do it. Because, yeah, it's a comforting thing to... To slag off, to, to, slag, mm. to slag, something or something. Well, it feels
1: not. harmless, but I think it's probably not a, a becoming mindset,
0: really. No, I think it's not good. I think we have to be positive. I, I want to talk finally about some positive things we can all do. You, I finally got you to do some yoga, right? Mm. right about a year ago, did you start something about like the, that? I think we did it for about a year and a half. And you didn't like it because you're a doctor, and, and a lot of the, I do yoga, and there's a lot of chat about things Accurate, that don't exist within the body as that far was, as the That was my profession. difficulty. Yeah. I
1: think if I'd come to it without medical knowledge, I'd have... Been more comfortable with it, but so much of it was plainly nonsense.
0: But for, I, th- I think if yeah, you do have to ignore some of the talking. I think the exercises they do are very, are very good for the body, and the breathing is very good for the mind, and, t- well, and the two together work It seemed to me to be. Well. A,
1: I was brought up by heavily Christian parents, and although I have now come to think that most of it was silly fairy stories. The fact is that the Christian way of life has a lot, a lot to commit. It. It's a it's a, a worthy way to live, and similarly with yoga. I felt that the exercises and the attitudes and the discipline were worthy. Mm. What I didn't like was all the rubbish, as I would say, that that was said to underpin it. In the same way that a lot of fairy tales underpin the Christian story. You know, mm. what we need is the essence rather than the background.
0: There's a lot of similarities. I think if you if you spend half an hour in a, in a good posture, feeling grateful for your life and, and breathing and clearing your mind, you could be praying to whichever God you believe in or you could be doing yoga and it will be very beneficial for you.
1: The thing I found most valuable was the body awareness that came mm. in um, the, the backlash was that I've never felt so critical of my own body until I started to do yoga.
0: But that's a good thing. Well, indeed, that's a good thing because yeah, you, my but, complacence was overcome. One of the best things they do is they make you take a scan of yes. your body and, and any and any, any tightness, any pain, just notice it without mm. judging. Because I think if you stop, my knee hurts, my knee hurts. You, you focus on it, it gets worse. If you if you just allow it to be, how did, how were you with the expression breathing into? Because you breathe. They ask you to breathe into a certain part of your body, which is meaningless in that you obviously can't put the breath. Well, I I found it useful.
1: I had done some work with hypnosis in the past, and there's a lot of overlap with hypnosis in terms of concentrating on particular parts of the body. I mean, one of the techniques in hypnosis is in inducting somebody, you get them to concentrate on their hand and and suggest to them that they're feeling pins and needles and it's getting light, and the hand Mm -hmm. goes up. And if they're good hypnotic subjects, that is what happens. You feel a bit of a chump if they're not, and it doesn't, but anyway. um, But I found with yoga that having to think oneself into particular parts of the body was actually quite a useful exercise.
0: I I think all the stuff about the chakras and the bandas, I mean, this this is done long before we had the anatomical knowledge we have now, and I think they were just attempts to explain without knowing what may or may not be going on. And I think they should maybe tailor it for a modern audience and do the stuff that doesn't jar with someone who knows that you perhaps don't have five banders but again in
1: comparison with religion you know the god created the world in seven days whatever it was it's mockable now but they didn't know all that stuff then so you know it was it was a not unreasonable way of primitive people to explain the way the world might have come into being and different religions had different stories and similarly i think the Yoga goes so far back that they had to have explanations for why bits of the body felt as if they had different functions, and I accept that. It's just that I think it would be sensible to de-emphasise some of that now.
0: Yeah, I think they could. I think they could do with updating some of the language, but I don't know. Someone who's had lots of injuries, I've found yoga amazing, and I i, I learned something new about it the other day, which is we tend to look at yoga. Someone doing yoga, say someone who's really good at it you're not supposed to say it. he's been doing it for a long time it's very flexible you think look at this amazing these amazing things this person could do that they've managed to achieve but then you look at a child and they can do mm. that stuff naturally mm. so you're not you're not achieving some outer worldly thing that your body's not supposed to be doing you're just returning it to a to a state when it was less fucked up than it is now you know you're just pulling your body back to flexibility and you're not You're not you're not contorting it. You're relaxing it into how it should be because your body should be able to. Yeah. Should. But you know, it started off being able to fold, and you'd be able to open your hips wide and to have loose, loose limbs. That's how it started off. We just spend our life far too sedentary and far too knotted up about various things, and it gradually goes. And the reason people find it difficult depends how long you've left it. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mentioned Picasso earlier in this conversation. Picasso um, spent all his life trying to get back to the truths of the way children draw. Right. But I remember I was in hospital when I was a small boy and was doing some drawings, and I wanted to take them home with me, but it was a fever hospital, so I wasn't allowed to. And I was desperate. I'd drawn a bus and I was desperate because this was the best bus I'd ever drawn. (laughs) And the nurse said, but, you know, you've done the big front wheels big and the back wheels small and buses don't look like that at all. And suddenly I could
0: see that it was a crap drawing. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. And that day you're, you're...
1: The scales fell from my eyes, and it was revealed to be a child's drawing,
0: and I wasn't ready for it. And you has what it ruined it for you, or?
1: Well, I'm, I have mixed feelings. It's a bit like learning about Santa Claus, you know. You need to know that stuff. It just—it's it, a bit of a shock when it happens.
0: Yeah, I d- but I, d- I think this. I think I think sort of telling people they can and can't do things is tough. I have a, I have a friend who my age, and he he draws now, and is brilliant at it. Draws cartoons and everything, but he age 13 a teacher just said you told him he was rubbish and he just stopped he Mm. was drawing all these amazing cartoons as a child got told he was rubbish by a teacher stopped Mm. and you know went off and i think the best way of being office job directly
1: learning things when you're a child is from your contemporaries because if your friend says you're crap at drawing it's an objective view, <laughs> mm. whereas if a teacher or a parent offers an opinion, whether, as you were saying earlier, they're praising it to the skies, even though the child at some level realises that it's not that good, mm. um, I think children accept what the group thinks much more readily yeah. than being, having input. From adults.
0: Well, we, we have to hope through all this nonsense well, whatever happens to the economy we'll, sometime, we'll muddle. We always find a way of muddling through, don't we? Though? Well, I, I am and an incurable optimist.
1: I think if England had been the only one with an appalling situation with this wretched virus, it would be really catastrophic. But the whole of the Western world Indeed, the whole of the the world is in the same situation, and I somehow feel that it's still a level playing field.
0: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, exactly, that's one the all all being in the same boat, I think is useful, because yeah, if it was one country, it would be basket case, wouldn't it, because you'd be be having to compete with everyone who was fine.
1: Yeah, but we're all the same, and I think, well, I would say this, but I think Brits are actually quite a resilient bunch.
0: Yeah, definitely are. Okay, good. that's ending on a positive note. Dr. Donald Holt, Dad, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to what was almost certainly the longest ever uninterrupted chat I've had with my dad, and the fact that we were recording meant he had to behave himself, which was great. That excellent book we talked about, is called Factfulness, Factfulness by Hans Rousing. It's a It's a really good kind of sobering look at what the world's really like from someone who knows the figures rather than what grubby media types like me would have you believe. We talked about things our wives make us do at the beginning. I'm going to be making more effort with social media and updating at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. There will also be a new Healthy Beast Podcast every Friday starting next week with my friend, mma fighter nathan mr bag and tag jones he'll be talking about his fighting career but also he's just become a dad and coping with being a fighter and a personal trainer on lockdown can't be easy it's not easy for any of us but when your job involves close personal contact must be almost impossible i know he's doing a load of zoom stuff but i'm going to find out exactly what he's up to and how he's training and how his life's going next friday see you then